Pastor Jeremy's right. We are talking today. Uh, we're starting a new series today, and we're going to start with this part of it, the backstory part. I, I don't know how, you know, anytime I meet people, to me, I just want to hear their story. Because there's times where you get a little picture of it, but you don't really know what's going on in their life. Just like you. People don't know really all your backstory. And as it is, you know, a lot of times with church, we come into church and, and um, we, we dress a little nicer, usually, because we're trying to show respect and it's Sunday and all. And used to be we dress up a lot, lot more. And then an effect of that at times can be that we, we don't really let everybody know everything that's going on because we, we also feel this kind of sense of we want to we put our best foot, best foot forward, right? You don't just put all your dirty laundry out there, hopefully, and, and hopefully you don't do that on Facebook either. Hopefully, uh, you, you want to give a good impression, but there's times where, you know, you think about a movie where when you first start watching a movie and they start introducing characters. Sometimes in a movie, they rely on what you already know. They assume you as the audience know quite a bit about the world or this character or whatever. Then sometimes they go really in-depth into the backstory, because they really feel like it's important you know about who this person is to understand what they're going to now do in this movie you're watching. But all of us have a backstory. I mean, all of us have experiences that have, have poured into who you are today. Maybe you've done this, maybe not. But, you know, there's times I've lived in different cities and been different places. And even here in Kansas City, especially what's flashing in my mind right now is times where I've, I've driven over by Brush Creek. You guys ever driven over there? You know how you stop at the light and there'll be somebody standing there asking for money. And what, what I always want to know is, how did they end up here? What is it that's happened in their life that brought them to this point where they're holding a sign and looking me in the eye? What is it? How did they get there? What was it? Was it a series of bad decisions? Are they down on their luck? I mean, is it their choice of a lifestyle? I, there was years where we did a lot of ministry with homeless people, and I, I've talked to homeless people, and they just basically tell me, I like this life with no responsibilities. I had one person tell me once, and I've heard this saying before, but they just said, not all who wander are lost. Because my, my drive is to fix it and to say, how can I get you from where you are now back to where you could be? And, and what, what is it that brought you here? Was it something that we could put a Band-Aid on or, or help heal or, you know what? How, has anybody visited anybody in prison before? That's a very humbling, overwhelming experience at times. And I was down in the county, county jail, county lockup downtown, and you know, you've, you've got to go through a background check, and then you go through this whole process, and then you go pass through these doors, and then you walk into this room, and you're talking to somebody through plexiglass that's like this thick, and they're on the phone, and you're on the phone. And I want to know, how'd you get here? What's going on? Because there's always a story. Was it a family failure? Was it a family issue? Was it abandonment? Was it something? I know one student I was working with, he, he was super confused, and it was the onset of mental illness for him that ended him up there. I just wonder, is it addiction? Is it fatherlessness? Sometimes when I visit some of you in the hospital, I know this sounds weird, but as I'm walking down the hallway, maybe not weird, but I'm, I'm praying for people as I walk through, and I'm not trying to stare in and, and interrupt their business, but there's times where you can't help it, where you hear something, or you're looking through, and you think, God, is there anybody visiting them? What's happening with them? And I've had nurses say, oh, wow, you're the 10th person today. This person must be awesome. And I say, I say yeah, they are, and, and they are. 
But I wonder about those other people in the other rooms. And what's their story? What is it that's causing them to be in that bed and nobody's there? And, and you know what? To be fair, I mean, it, the family could have just gone to lunch. I get that. But there's a story. There's always a backstory. And sometimes those stories are deep and dark and horrible. And I've wondered this too. You know, I've worked with students who've come through really chaotic, horrible backgrounds in their life. And you see some kids who there's a certain resiliency to them. And in spite of all the background and the chaos and the horrible life that's going on around them, they succeed. Then you have their brother who doesn't. And I wonder about that. How does that happen? I mean, in spite of all that, they seem to make it. And you look at them, and I, I, for me, I look through and I think, was it maybe at a certain point in those formative years that there was maybe neglect or maybe, maybe abuse or something worse? There are studies that have been done on these kids that they call them resilient. And they say that um, for these kids who seem to achieve regardless of their situation, it's because they have a certain amount of social competence Problem-solving skills, critical consciousness, autonomy, and then a sense of purpose. What the missionary Eric Spencer was talking about is a sense of purpose. When he's talking about Candace and that she was chosen and that God knew who she was before she was even born. For some kids, they need to hear that from somebody. They need to have somebody speak into their life and tell them, you matter. And there's a God who created you and knows who you are and knows where you are. And he's put something special inside of you. And that thing can carry you on. And I've worked with people who would tell me, you know, it was this teacher. They wrote on my paper, you've got what it takes. I've asked, I mean, I'm, that, that is a real story. And I asked the person, really, did they, did they talk to you after class? Did they help you out? Did they tutor you? No, they just wrote that on my paper one day. And literally, I mean, maybe it's the wrong thing to say. But this is me. I said, that's it. That's it. Someone told them they had what it takes. You wonder, what is it? Maybe in your life, you look back and you can remember a teacher who spoke into your life or a, or a pastor or a parent or an aunt or an uncle or somebody who saw something in you. Because the sad thing is a lot of people don't have that. And instead, what you see is people perpetuate a cycle of dysfunction and a cycle of pain and a cycle of chaos because it's what they know. And if they're raised in that, we tend to perpetuate that cycle that we're familiar with. And we as flawed parents, we tend to act out those misguided concepts on our kids and then they do the same thing. And each generation adds another link to a chain of pain and dysfunction. Unless someone, someone recognizes that something can be different and they can break that chain. I've told you this story before, but you know, as a youth pastor all those years, it's amazing what you can hear and find out about people when you're driving the van and they're just talking behind you. It's almost like they forget that their mouth is pointed right to my ears. <laughs> and if I were to sit across from them and say, tell me about your life, they probably would say, that's oh, all right, everything's okay. But sitting there with their friends, they're just talking, talking, talking. Remember one time in particular, a couple kids were talking about how I'm never going to have kids. That always shocks me when a young person says that. Because most of us as adults are, are kind of making those, that's an adult decision. But they're saying, I've already decided I'm not going to have kids. And it wasn't just one, it was three of them, it was two guys and a girl. And they said, there's no way, and here's what they said, there's no way I'm going to do to my kids or even have a chance of doing what my dad did to me. And they went through the list. I didn't pull the van over, I just turned the light on, which always gets everybody's attention. I just said, 
You don't have to do what your dad did. You can break the cycle. You know better. You already know what it should be like. Even what you're saying tells me you know what it takes. And it tells me you're right on the road to having what it takes. And you can be a different kind of parent than anything you've had in the past. You can break the cycle. And they can. I think about my own family. My dad was raised on a, uh, a working ranch in Northern California. And, that, and I know that's kind of a weird term. Maybe it's just a California thing. But, I mean, they did grow crops. You know, they had, they had table grapes and they had, you know, weed and they had an apple orchard and they had um, walnuts. I mean, that's, that's what they did. And they didn't raise animals for food. They raised them for their, themselves, that kind of thing. And, uh, but my grandfather was abusive. And I, I remember growing up hearing these stories. And maybe you, like me, you've heard your parents tell stories and you think, oh, that's exaggerated, or they're just telling me that because I'm not appreciative of what I have, or right? You've heard those stories? You know, you walk forever in the snow and all that. But my dad would tell me that his dad would, would beat him regularly. And um, he, <laughs> he told me a story about how once they were jumping out of the uh, hayloft and my dad landed on the pitchfork. I know this sounds bizarre. I mean, this is just a whole nother world, isn't it, for most of us? And, and it's, I know it's true because I've seen the scars in his hip right here. He's got these four scars. <laughs> and the problem was his brothers couldn't get it off. It was stuck. And they're pushing on it, trying to get it off. And the, here was their big dilemma. Well, we can't call dad. He's going to beat all of us for this. That's the life. That's how he grew up. And that's what happened. His dad came in, and that's what happened. My dad told me, though, that at one point, my, he was, uh, my grandfather was beating him so much that my grandmother couldn't take it anymore. So she came out with a cast iron skillet. And hit him in the head and knocked him out. And that's one of those stories where I thought, I'm not sure that's true. <laughs> I mean, doesn't that sound a little hard to believe? Because you see people get knocked out in the movies, but I mean, that doesn't really happen that much in real life. You know, it's just, it just doesn't seem possible. But years later, I remember talking to my grandma, and it didn't start out this way. I didn't start off saying, can you tell me if these stories dad told were true? But, but we were just talking. And I asked, and it was true. That's how he was raised. And I remember him telling me once, one of those times where I had done something really wrong. <laughs> I told someone this the other day. Here's what we did. We lived in Florida at the time, and we didn't want to go to church, my sister and I. I know that sounds weird. I'm a pastor and everything now. But, uh, and I was, only, I was only six or seven. I don't even know how old I was at the time, but we didn't want to go to church. So here's what we did. We dug a hole so big behind the car that it fell into the hole. The tire fell in the hole. <laughs> I know. Hard to believe, huh? You thought I was a perfect kid. Um, but... <clears throat> So I remember sitting there waiting for my dad to punish us. He was so furious. And what he told us is, sorry, he said, he said he promised God that he would never do to his kids what his dad did him, ever. So he was waiting till he could punish us. And not be angry. It took hours. It was horrible. <laughs> I almost wished he'd have just spanked us and got it over with. But he never raised sin to us in anger, ever. That's one of the reasons it was so hard to believe he was raised that way. Because I never saw that. It's a backstory. We're going to look at the life of, uh, of Joseph for the next few weeks. His backstory is horrible. And as you look at it, we. I think we in the church, a lot of times, you don't consider um, 
you just don't consider our biblical heroes to be coming from dysfunctional families. You just don't think about it that way. And I think it's because of, you know, you grow up, maybe you're old as me, and you grew up with flannel graph. That doesn't, that doesn't go with flannel graph. Plus, it's us looking at the Bible stories. We kind of focus on the morals of the stories that we're supposed to learn. And, and we look at the outcome, and we know the before and after. And you kind of skip over some of the backstory that makes all the drama in the story and who the person is. But God put that in there because that's real life, and we live real life. And he put it in there so that we can relate to real people in the real Bible. It's one of the great things about Scripture that, that reassures me that it's true. Is It's not a story that someone tried to just make up these perfect people. It wasn't like that. They weren't superhuman, and they weren't perfect all the time. Instead, they had failure after failure, just like you and me. And they lived in real homes that were were not perfect just like you and me. And they overcame and they had successes and God came and saved them just like he can do for you and me. Something else about Joseph that's interesting to me and it's just maybe because I'm a Bible geek but there's eight main characters in the whole book of Genesis. Eight. You can go through them. You probably could recite them to me. I mean obviously God starts it out and we got Adam and Eve and you've got Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And you might not have put Joseph in that list because those others are the patriarchs and those others are who they are. But Joseph actually occupies more verses in the book of Genesis than anybody else. 14 chapters deal with Abraham and 14 deal with Joseph, but Joseph's treatment is much longer. I think there's something important about that. Something other other thing that's just interesting again this is Bible geek stuff but People have put together all these similarities between the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus. There's over a hundred of them. Things like he was specially chosen and beloved by his dad. He was somebody who suffered for things he didn't do. And at one point, Joseph is cast between two criminals. You've got the baker and the, and the uh, cupbearer. One of them goes on to uh, paradise and the other does not. Just interesting. And then Joseph forgives those who put him in their place. We're going to look at some principles through this series. One of them that you will see reoccurring over and over and over is something that I never want you to forget. That we serve a God who takes whatever chaos, whatever chaos has been done to you or that you have caused, and if you will turn it over to him and have the right attitude about it, he will take that and make beautiful things out of it. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that God causes everything to work together for good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. There's a key in that verse. It's the loving God and called according to his purpose. He works in that all the time. God uses circumstances, sometimes little things, and turns them into into life-changing, life-altering things in your life. And it's easy to miss those things because a lot of times we're focused on whatever we're focused on or we're upset about a certain thing and we're missing what God is doing and we're missing the way he can turn something into a beautiful thing. And in Joseph's case, we'll look at it later, but those of you who know his story, he would have never chosen to walk the way he walked or to end up where he ended up. But because of where he ends up, he is put in the the crucial position of saving the lives of millions upon millions of people from starvation, including his own family. Something aligned with that is the fact that God's always at work, and we're usually missing it. 
he's always at work. There may be times where you're not focused on what he's focused on, or maybe you think he should be doing something different. But don't ever forget he's always at work. Not only is he always at work, but he's at work in different areas where you may not be focused. He's working on different people. You may be frustrated with somebody, but you have no idea how he's working behind the scenes to orchestrate something. Just like I mentioned with Eric Spencer, the missionary, knowing Mark Versloys, the missionary, before either of them were missionaries. God was working. He was building into both of them special gifts and talents, which he will now use in the Congo. And to do something that we have no idea what it was. And we couldn't have planned and they couldn't have planned because that's the God we serve and that's what he does. As we look at some of Jacob's, uh, Joseph's father, Jacob, and the dysfunction that's in his family, think of, um, I don't know how many of you watch soap operas, probably not very many, but um, this family, this story reads like a soap opera or a movie. I mean, if somebody were to do this whole thing, it, it could be pretty amazing. Let's, let's hop in here. We're going to hop in at verse 37. And where we're popping in here, uh, we'll, we'll talk about it in a minute, but just look. So Jacob settled again in the land of Canaan, where his father had lived as a foreigner. That's this is Joseph's father. This is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flock. So the things we're going to talk about today all happened before the age of 17. So imagine a high schooler or younger. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. <clears throat> Jacob loved Joseph more than any of these other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. And they couldn't say a kind word to him at all. What I want you to remember through this is God is at work often when we're least aware of it. Now, a lot of that funk dysfunction I was mentioning was in those verses right there. Did you catch that? Did you catch how many stepmothers Joseph had? Only two are mentioned there. He actually had three, three stepmothers. I know some of you maybe grew up in a home like that, and I don't know if you've ever noticed how many of the fairy tales involve that. You know why? Because it adds dysfunction. It doesn't have to. God can redeem that and make it a beautiful thing, and he has in a lot of your lives. But the fact is, it adds a lot of chaos. Did you catch how many half-brothers he had? In that story, it didn't even list them all. He had ten. I don't know how many brothers you grew up with, but he had 10. And he was, at this point in the story, the youngest of all of them. He also had one half-sister. There was probably others, but that's the only ones listed. And all of these lived together, which is hard for us to even imagine today and in our culture. In our culture, we don't often live with our extended family, but back then, that's how it worked. So these older brothers, they would have had families already of their own, but they were still the brothers, and polygamy, it's mentioned there, and it's kind of glossed over. It wasn't God's plan, but it was common then. And part of the polygamous situation that was lived in here was, was certainly not a part of God's plan. Originally, Jacob had two wives. you remember their names? Rachel and Leah? Do you remember how all that happened? All of this adds to the soap opera and the drama. What the story is, is that Jacob goes back to some of the family to uh, find a wife. And when he's there, he meets the wife, and he, it's the wife of his dreams. So he makes a deal with her father. I'll work for you seven years for your daughter. Then when the lights come on after the marriage night, he finds out dad had slipped in the older sister instead. <laughs> the sad part is she always knew that. She always knew she wasn't the favorite. 
Leah always knew she wasn't good enough, and she wasn't Jacob's favorite wife. Can you imagine the drama? And then they were barren. But Leah bears more children than any of the others, and then both Leah and Rachel give him their maids to bear children. So all of these half-sisters or half-brothers from different moms, some of the moms are, are servant moms. Just, it's just crazy. Can you imagine the jealousy? Can you imagine the insecurity even among the women? Can you imagine the constant conflict and how that's played out over the children? You know how children can be. What do you think they said to each other or called each other? I mean, you're the slave mom's son or who knows? It's hard to know at this point in the story. Jacob was a passive parent, too. His lack of involvement in his family. There's times, there's things that happen that you realize as an attendant father, he should have known what was going on and he should have stepped in and made things right, but he didn't. And all of that chaos gets played out on the kids, especially the younger ones. And we know from this story how, how there's this history, even with Jacob's life. We, Jacob's at one point called a, he's called a supplanter. He's called all these names because he himself was always always doing tricks and trying to pull fast ones. And if you know his story, when he was born, he was a twin, and his older brother Esau was coming out first, but he was grasping his heel on the way out. And he, he ended up tricking his brother into selling his birthright, and then later he tricks, they both tricked their father. I mean, well, sorry, Jacob and his mom, they connive and conspire, and they trick his father to get the blessing. This is the family that Joseph grows up in. And his brothers, if you look at their history... The brothers are who we refer to as the patriarchs. They're the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. But they themselves, one after another, do these horrible, evil things that are listed in here. And these are his older brothers. This is who he looks up to, and they're surrounded by this. One of the most heinous stories we read about is two of the brothers, Simeon and Levi. Their sister Dinah is raped by some of the the local neighbors. And so what they do is they don't, they don't want her marrying him, and he wants to marry him, so they make this arrangement with him that if, if him and all of his family will be circumcised, that they'll let her marry him. And then as those guys are sore from circumcision, they go in and murder all of them. This is his family. I know that some of us have maybe chaotic families, but I'm guessing not this chaotic. So my question is, how does Joseph end up being one of the most godly examples in the whole old testament how does that happen how does he grow up is he the resilient one do you wonder if you're looking at his life how, how is it that he didn't fall into all these other things how, how is it that he could forgive after we'll see all the things that happened to him was there at some point somebody that said there's a god that loves you and knows you i think there is that moment in his life and i want us to look at it for a minute because what happens is God always responds to humble hunger. His father, Jacob, at one point he takes all of his kids and family and he decides, I need to leave from my father-in-law. And he doesn't tell his father-in-law he's leaving, packs up the whole family. And at this point, he's very wealthy. He's got a lot of cattle, a lot of sheep, a lot of donkeys and the children. And they run off and escape. The father-in-law chases them down. They have this kind of confrontation. Then as Jacob is heading home, he hears that his brother Esau, the one that he cheated out of the birthright, is coming to meet him with 400 fighting men. Jacob, no doubt at this point, is scared for his life. And what he does is he separates his family into two groups. 
Imagine the young Joseph right now. He's just a kid. They estimate between the years of 13 to 17 years old at this point, and they're separated out. And what he does is he sends on ahead gifts of animals and gifts of servants. And then he's got the two families separated out, and he keeps Joseph and Rachel at the far back. And then he spends the night alone with God. He, he leaves them there, and Jacob goes to spend the, lo- the night alone. It's in that moment that an angel appears to him. Some think that it's a pre-incarnate um, example of Jesus, maybe even. But regardless, they wrestle. <laughs> Sounds weird, doesn't it? I mean, some of you maybe have wrestled with God in prayer over something. But this is physical wrestling. And what he's doing is he's telling him, I want you to bless me. He desperately wants the blessing of God. Did he deserve it? None of us deserve it. But in the process of this, at some point near the morning, they, he can't defeat, they can't defeat each other. The angel touches his hip and gives him a permanent limp. So all of this is happening. You're the young Joseph, and you see dad limping back into camp. And what does he tell you? He tells you, I wrestled with God. And he tells you, God changed my name. Because Jacob actually meant supplanter, trickster, conniver. And he gave him the name of Israel. Changed him. He told his kids that story. You know what else he probably told them? That right near there, on the way out to meet your mothers, probably didn't say it that way. On the way out to meet your mother, it's here that I spent the night and laid my head on a rock. And I had this dream and I saw angels going up and down to heaven. We call it Jacob's Ladder. You know what he told the young Joseph and everybody else? God is real. And he knows who I am. And he knows where we are. And he knows what's about to happen. And then the young Joseph would have watched all of that drama play out. As they come into contact with Esau and the 400 fighting men. And Esau says, what is all this? And who's all these animals? And the servant said, they're your brother Jacob's and they're a gift for you. And as he comes up to Jacob, he says, all is forgiven and you don't need to give me any presents. And Jacob says, no, take them all. And they mend that relationship and they go on into the Holy Land. I think what happened to, to Joseph on that night was he had a moment and he saw that God had a plan even for his father. And God has a plan for you. God has a plan for you. I didn't know that the missionary was going to say that about Psalm 139 today, but God knew. And I believe that there's someone here today and you're wondering, does God still have a plan for me? God forbid that your life would have been like the, the world that Joseph grew up in, but maybe you've made some mistakes. Or maybe, maybe there's some things that have happened to you along the way. And maybe for you, you've been wondering, is there a God and does he even know who I am and care? And the fact is, he does and he does. Not only does he know who you are, but he's got plans for you. And you know what I love about our God too? Even when we mess up his plans, he works it out so he can fix another plan. Wouldn't it be sad as every time you messed up, God just said, okay, done with you, you're, you're out of the game. He never takes us out of the game. He finds a way to make it work again because he's God and he can do that. No matter what, he still has a plan. (laughs) Sometimes in life, you just need a do-over. Sometimes in life, you need to purge your credit history or 
clean up your backstory, and we serve a God who can do it. So here's how we do it. Let me just get to this. The first thing I think that's important is that you need to acknowledge that God can make a way. Just like Pastor Nick, again, as he was talking about that worship song and how when we say, God, you're welcome here, it's not like God is waiting for outside for us to say, you're welcome in here. It's us telling ourselves he's welcome in here. You're convincing yourself that he's welcome. You're opening yourself up to him. And that's what you need to do today and say that you acknowledge that God can make a way in your life. For Joseph, at the very end of the story, he says this, talking to his brothers, what you meant for evil against me, God meant it for good. God will make a way. You need to acknowledge that fact and say, yes, I believe it. God can make a way for me. The next thing you'll see as we study this life of Joseph is you need to choose responsibility. Everybody has bad things happen. Yes, they're different and they vary. And if you're just going to compare horrible, you know how people do that sometimes. Maybe you're going through something. Maybe you, I, I did it today. There's a young man here who's got a broken foot and he's on crutches. And I told him about how when I was on crutches, we can't help but do it, right? I didn't make my story worse than yours, did I? I thought about it. My story's way worse than yours, by the way. I'm just kidding. Don't we do that? We do it over and over and over, though. But here's the thing. You can choose how you respond to those things. You can embrace a God who loves you and cares about you and will take whatever horrible thing is and make it a beautiful thing. Or you can wallow in the horribleness of your story. You can choose to, to, to be a victim or you can choose to let him find victory for you in it. And I don't care where this comes from, if it's, if it's your own personal sin or something bad that happened to you, or maybe just something stupid you did. The fact is that God can take that and make it awesome. He can, and he does, no matter what it is. Maybe you're raised in a home where your parents are divorced, or your dad was an alcoholic, or you were abused, or Joseph didn't let it make him a victim. He didn't. He chose to break the cycle, and he took responsibility. A couple more things. The next thing is this. Be aware, though, your choices outlive you, all of us. Joseph was a direct result of all the choices his father made and all of his brothers. He lived out those circumstances. We, what we do, our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. But let's, let's end with this. God is always, always at work. Look for where he's working. Sometimes it's so hard to see because we're focused on what's going wrong that we don't look for where he's working, but he's always, always, always working. And when you come to him in faith, he rewards that faith. In, in Hebrews eleven six, 6, it says, it's impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and he rewards those who sincerely seek him. I'd love for the worship team to join me up here. And as they do, I want us to think about this for a minute. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking, wow, I never realized I could relate to people in the Bible, but I can. Because you have a history like that. Some of you may be sitting here and you may be thinking, but you don't understand, Pastor Dennis. This happened to me and this happened to me and this happened to me. And you're right, I don't understand. And I can't possibly understand what you've been through. But we serve a God who can and does and knows and a God who has a future for you. No matter what it is, he has a future for you. We serve a God that, that just as the verse that, that Eric shared out of one, Psalm 139, that we have a God who knew you before you were even born and planned something for you. And maybe you think, oh, it's over. I'm too old for that, or I've already missed it. 
nope, sorry. Can't get out of it that easy because we also serve a God that, that takes all of those situations and he can weave them into awesome things for the future. That's what he does. So let me do this with you for a minute. Let me just ask you to shut your eyes for a second, everybody in the room. And with your eyes shut, I just want to talk to you for a moment as if it's just you and me in the room. The first thing I'm curious about is, is there anybody here that would just, just between you and God admit, I can kind of relate to Joseph's life. Anybody at all? I see those hands. Let me ask you another question. Probably the most important question you'll get all day long. Maybe you're sitting here today and you... You didn't come to church planning to follow Jesus. You just came because a friend asked you, or maybe you just showed up here. But you're hearing all this today, and you're hearing that there's a God who cares about you, and a God who loves you, and a God who's got a plan for your life. And you're, you're, you're willing today to say, if all that's true, then I might give him a chance today. And if you'd be willing to tell him, look, I'm sorry, God, for the things that I've done wrong, and I know that you have a son who you gave to, to pay the price for my sin, and I want you to come into my life and make it new that you give him a chance today. Anybody like that? You just raise your hand and say, I'll give him a chance today. Anybody at all? Just raise your hand so I can see it. I just want to pray with you. Here's my last call to you all today. This is it. I think some of us need to give God some of the things in our past. And, and hear me here. He will make great things out of your life. No matter if it's your fault where you're at or someone else's fault. He will if you give it to him and let him work in it. That's what he does. So let me ask you this. Big or small, that's not the point. My question is, is there anybody here who would raise your hand and say, I'm willing to let him work in my life? Anybody at all, just raise your hand. It's a lot of hands all over the place. He will do that. Will you stand with me? I don't want to let a Sunday go by where we don't give you an opportunity to come forward and, and let some of us pray with you about anything you want, anything you want. So if, if I could, if I could have board, staff, wives, prayer team, come on down. And if you want prayer, we're going to give a moment for that. But here's what I'd like to do. For all of us, I just want you, as we, as a worship team leads in a song, I want you to give God your life. And you, in your own words, just tell him, God, I know I've messed this up or that up. But you tell him, God, I'm, I'm willing to let you change my life. Just tell him that for a few minutes, just you and him. And if you'd like prayer, come on down for just a minute.